2: This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. 75 years ago, a policy paper was published that changed our country forever. The Beveridge Report, which came out in late 1942, became the template for the 1945 Labour government's audacious construction of the welfare state. I'm Connor Pope and I'm joined by Progress Chair Alice McGovern, Director Richard Angel, and today's guest welfare expert Nicholas Timmins, to discuss what the Beveridge Report means in 2018.
1: Things are starting to wind down before the Christmas break. People will soon be back at home, sitting on the settee and killing time. One of the most obvious ways to while away the dead hours over Christmas is with a Christmas movie. I started early this year and went to see Home Alone at Clapham's Winter Wonderland with a friend of mine. Why? You cannot be mince pies, mulled wine and the best Christmas film of the 90s. So we're going to come to you first, Alison. What is your favourite
3: Christmas film? I'm a total refusenick on this oh, question. Alison. Like Home Alone is probably one of the worst films I have ever seen. Resign. <laughs> How can you say that? It's terrible. They also made a second
1: one and a third one. And then basically they made a Bond film, which is the same idea the one where he drives up to scotland and blows the house apart anyway <laughs> look, was, it was yeah, basically most was, of
3: them are, most of them are completely terrible i have a secret hankering for love actually yay, at this time of the year see? That's, that's the only point at which i melt is love actually How is that the only one you melt at? oh god is
1: it the bit where he like holds the little signs up and is like i know your husband's my best friend but i love you really no really no, no it's
3: it's obviously hugh Grant as the prime minister oh that's obviously what it is
4: Uh, So, Nicholas, what's your... um... I'm I'm with Alison. I can't stand home alone. (laughs) And I would choose Love, actually, because it's one of those movies that you either loathe it Or very early on, you give in and just enjoy it. And if you give in and just enjoy it, it's a great movie.
2: I think that's exactly the same for Home Alone. Though (laughs) I'm with Richard. I think Home Alone is a brilliant film. I actually prefer the second one. I think that is sacrilege. But um, I really like the second one. That's that's my personal preference. Amazing. I watched Muppets Christmas Carol last week um, at home. Really? Yeah. Yeah,
3: but if you're gonna like, if you're gonna watch the Muppets, like watch the Muppet Show, what's the proper thing? I
2: mean, Christmas, Alison. My, fa- oh. my personal favourite Muppets film, I don't want to get into the best of the Muppets, but my, my personal favourite Muppets film is Treasure Island, which has Billy Connolly in it, and he dies in the first five minutes, which must be a kind of a unique <laughs> appearance a in, in a Muppets uh, film, I think.
1: Do we need an intervention to come up to make Ria's Christmas if you're going to be like... No, My, all farm my daughter
3: is fine. Basically, she is currently trolling me because she knows that I don't like Christmas very much. So she has been jumping around the house with reindeer antlers on. So, yeah, we adopted those
1: reindeer <laughs> at the top down. Well yeah. done.
2: I think that we probably need to wrap up on, on this section, especially if we have a couple of Christmas special episodes coming up over the next couple of weeks. So we can, you know, force Alison to talk about this much more <laughs> in those episodes. But I think just for now, we need to move on.
3: So if you love Christmas as much as I do, uh, and it's fastly approaching, uh, what could be a better gift to give your loved one than a progress mug? If you leave a review on iTunes, you could be in with a chance of winning a progress mug that you can pass on to a friend or loved one. Each week on Friday, Richard and Connor give away at least one of our fantastic mugs. So make sure you leave your review now on prog.rs forward slash iTunes.
2: In the December issue of Progress Magazine, Nicholas Timmins writes that William Beveridge described the influence of his 1942 report as the greatest advance in our history. From now on, Beveridge is not the name of a man, it is the name of a way of life. Beveridge outlined five giant evils of society that needed tackling by politicians, disease, ignorance, idleness, squalor and want. 75 years after the Beveridge report was published, what is the state of those five giants in today's society? And are there any new ones that need adding to the list? To discuss that, we have Nicholas Timmons, who is a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and the King's Fund and author of the book The Five Giants, which I believe has just been updated and republished for this anniversary. And he's going to discuss this here with us. So when I told Pat McFadden
1: that we had Nicholas in our uh, edition of the magazine when we were commissioning him to analyse one of those five giants and how it had aged. He told me, genuinely, Pat McFadden went, wow, you have the guru. So we are very pleased to do that. And when we am telling that story in the office, Matthew Doyle, who was previously a special advisor for David Blunkett at the Department of Work and Pensions, said he was happy to brief any journalist on the development of new policy other than Nicholas, because he knew more about it than anybody in the department, <laughs> and that Matthew's briefing would probably come unstuck. So he would just offer up the Secretary of State yeah. <laughs> for doing it. So we're so really, really pleased to have you here, Nicholas. So thank oh, you for wow. so making the time and being part of the last edition
2: of the magazine. Before we get on to the kind of contemporary issues around this subject, I did want to start kind of at the beginning and look back at the anniversary because I, I want to understand better what the reception really was like in 1942 when this report came out, because we know the stories. The, the, you know, there were queues going around outside places that were selling it because people wanted to, to buy it. And Beveridge himself, I think, described it as uh, like riding
4: through a cheering mob on an elephant.
2: Yep. Was, was, was that really what the reception was like? Was it, yes. Were people well, that it, excited well, it, about a policy document?
4: Well, it was, despite the fact that it's got the world's most boring title, like <laughs> social, social, service, you know, social Insurance and Allied Services. I mean, it was a ma- partly a matter of luck and partly a matter of judgment and timing. Uh, you've got to remember, Beveridge used to be a journalist, in his early days and he sort of laid the ground before the report came out a bit of early spin doctoring so to speak (laughs) and there were people in government who saw it as really important by happy coincidence it was published about a fortnight after el alamein which was the first real turning point in the war you know there seemed to be light at the end of the tunnel after two and a half years of complete misery and the blitz and what have you it just caught the public imagination, and partly it was the language he used, all that fantastic moment about a revolutionary in the world's time, the moment in the world's history is a time for revolutions not patching, all the stuff about the five giant evils that no one can afford to live with. So it was partly the rhetoric, partly the timing, partly the government giving it a push. It promised a better time after the war. It almost gave a purpose for fighting the war, in a sense, other than mere survival. And they dropped copies into Nazi-occupied France and they made a profit selling it in the United States. I didn't realise that. They dropped a
2: beverage report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They
4: found found a copy of it at at the end of the war in Hitler's bunker. They found a copy of it with commentary on it. Uh, which included, this is better than German social insurance, this is no botch-up, you know, it's very, very good. What was that psychologically to say Britain will survive? We're planning to yeah, having something something Yeah, something better after the war, if you see what I mean. I mean, there's a lovely story on the eve of D-Day, Churchill and Ernest Bevan, who was, went down to Portsmouth to see the troops off, Bevan relates that, you know, they were going down the line and the troops said to me, Ernie, when we've done this job for you, we'll be going back on the dole. And Bevan said, no. Both the Prime Minister and I replied, no, you are not. So there was this sense of a need that the war was not just about survival, but to build something better afterwards.
3: My recollection, if I may, kind of just from Barbara Castle's autobiography, is she talks about. Her and some of the, like, young Labour, she was a a local councillor just in that wartime period, and them doing meetings around the country about the beverage report. They literally went from, like, these nascent branch Labour parties to the Women's Institute to, you know, Socialist Society, literally talking about it to kind of groups of people. And there was a whole host of them that, like, basically took the beverage report out and campaigned for it. This sense of, like... You know the now win the peace moment that we had to deliver for something after the was matched by a campaigning ferocity no, amongst that generation. Absolutely. And you
4: have to remember, it came after the nineteen thirties. So you know the nineteen thirties with the Great Depression, and people wanted away from that, and they wanted something better. So it sort of, you know, and also to be fair, Beveridge built on quite a lot of what was already there. Despite all the rhetoric about a revolution, in fact, there was there were various forms of unemployment and health insurance pre-war. And he sort of took a social insurance model and built on it for the social security system. And how much was it cross-party in its support? Oh, it's pretty cross-party. Partly because people tend to think of it as a socialist document. It's not really a socialist document. It's much more a liberal one in the sense that it's about a minimalist level of provision. You fall back to a safety net rather than having an earnings-related approach, which is what most of the main European countries took after the war. He says in, in providing help the state should not cramp individual responsibility or styles. So the left of the Tory party could see things in it that fitted with what they wanted at the same time as the Labour Party could say, Well, this is this will tackle poverty, want disease, ignorance and squalor. So so there was something in it for everybody at one level. And how much was his choice of assistant
1: important to the report and going forward? Because, of course, Wilson, who went on to become a Labour prime minister, was
4: the secretariat to the report. No, he wasn't. He'd he been a researcher for, for, for Beveridge. He turned down being the, the secretary to the to the commission. I think he couldn't didn't really get on with Beveridge. The, the social security bit is a social insurance system, national insurance contributions. And, in and so how did Labour come
2: to... Own the idea of the welfare state because I mean clearly the obvious answer there is they implemented it after the war but yeah. it seemed through winning 1945 with such a majority that they'd completely captured the imagination what you say here you yeah, know, yeah. kind of it was a liberal document mm. and the national government which obviously was headed by a conservative during the war you know used it as as propaganda but it. it why was it Labour
4: that seemed to kind of... Well, I suppose it be, was because they won in 1945 by a landslide. But it's worth remembering the Butler Education Act, you know, which raised the school-leaving age and did all sorts of other really good things, made schooling-free, all sorts of... That was 1944. That was under the Coalition wartime government. Family allowances came in before Labour legislated for anything. That was legislated for the... And why did they own it? Well, I suppose they, they partly seemed to have owned it because of the NHS... Now, it's quite clear there would have been a National Health Service after the war, whoever won. I mean, what it would look like is Mm. quite another matter. Um, But the Conservatives did make a terrible sort of tactical political error in that they voted, although actually they supported the idea of a National Health Service, they got tempted into voting against the bill on the third reading. And as the political gurus among you will know, you only vote, vote against on the third reading if you disapprove of the principle. And they allow themselves to be trapped into doing that so Labour could forever beat them up saying they voted against the NHS and and it's partly why the NHS is seen so much as a Labour creation, I think. I don't know about everyone else, but I've definitely used that as an argument. Absolutely have,
0: absolutely.
3: If you've never said the words, don't forget the Tories voted against it. Are you even a Labour activist? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
4: If you're not, you're very welcome to be listening to the podcast. But it is worth pointing out, there would have been some sort of a national health service Mm. after the war, even if the Conservatives had won.
3: So how much do you think then... Both the Beveridge Report and the NHS were a part of the, our national story yeah, was... in the post-war time. Yeah. Like, whatever the political reality of it, which, yeah, absolutely, as you say, you know, it built on existing reforms anyway, and there was a level of cross-party agreement. But how, do you, how much do you think that it was just a moment where we retold the story of what our country was? Yeah, yeah.
4: It, was a, it was of its time. I mean, it just was of its time, wasn't it? It captured... You know, the whole idea captured a mood in, that was a national mood, became a national mood. So it it took what was there and amplified it, so to speak. So it became unstoppable.
2: So you said that, you know, whoever won that 1945 election, there probably would have been a National Health Service of some sort. And obviously, since then, for the majority of the time, there has been a Conservative government. So what kind of state do you think the welfare state as a whole is now? Because obviously we hear... So much about lacks of funding and mismanagement, but actually, it still it still exists. The beast
4: is still alive, mm. as they say. Yes, absolutely. Well, clearly, it's under a lot of stress and strain at the moment. Seven years of austerity have hardly been kind to it, and mm. and you can you know reel off a whole. I'm sure we will in the conversation, reel off a whole load of things that are wrong and difficult with it. But you know, it still takes two thirds of all government expenditure, depending precisely how you define the welfare state. It's still there. Yeah, the health service is clearly under enormous pressure at the moment, but it's still treating more patients to higher ever higher clinical standards at the moment. Now it's it's clearly under pressure, and it's perfectly possible that some of the massive gains of the 2000s, particularly around waiting times, may slip away. And they cost billions and billions and billions to get waiting times down. And if you lose them, you might lose them if not forever, for a very, very long time, because it would cost a lot to get it back. So it's clearly under a lot of pressure, but it is still there. Which of the five giants do you think still poses the biggest problem? Well, I don't know about the biggest. I mean, in a sense, they're all still there, aren't they? They've changed in their nature, and some of them got bigger, some of them shrunk. So, you know, clearly on on one level, the health service has been an enormous success. How much that's had to do with government and how much that's had to do with the advance of medicine more generally is a much more debatable point. But, you know, but the problems have changed. So in the 40s, the big fears were infectious diseases. And now it's obesity, old age and dementia and those problems. People with multiple chronic long-term conditions. So the problem has changed. The old attack on disease was successful. We've just got some new diseases, partly thanks to greater longevity, which has been, on the whole, a very good thing, but brings its problems. The social security system has changed probably most, in the sense, again, that it's still there, but there have been some big... It's one of the few areas where there have been some quite big conceptual shifts, so that huge shift that took place in the 1990s across both parties in the end, which was, you know, up to then, people were paid benefit when they were out of work on condition they did not work And the big shift was to start subsidising people to be in work because of the effects of globalisation on low pay. So you get tax credits and now universal credit. And that was a big conceptual shift, you know, a real change of role. You know, the pension has been through many journeys on its way, but it's now actually pretty much back to what Beveridge wanted. I mean, it's now heading towards a single state pension, which provides just enough to get by on. Not generous by any means, but just, you know you can survive on the basic state pension just. And that was kind of Beveridge's basic platform, which he built, encouraging savings on top. We've seen the you know demise for new people in final salary pension schemes and all that. But we have now got auto-enrollment, which is not getting people to save enough yet, but it's a platform on which you can build. And the dropout rate's been very low, so much lower than many people suspected. So that is, you know, it's early days, but that's beginning to look like a success. It's not going to provide a gold or a silver age of pensions like final salary did for those who had them. But it's maybe the start towards building a bronze one.
3: And how much do you think, just going back to Nick, what you said, which is really interesting about the change between, you know, the old concept of unemployment benefit of some kind or other that basically replaced people's income when they weren't working through to what we have now, which is where we still, you know, replace some people's income but a really small amount of the population but much more we're subsidizing income as people do work how well do you think that change is understood by the public because in the context of elections for example you know the two sort of issues that you often get raised if people are sort of like angry with politicians you know it's immigration and people that live on benefits and yeah. You kind of get the rhetoric is basically like, hasn't moved on, the rhetoric is still stuck in that picture of like, that people are being paid not to work. And that's where I, I feel like politics is kind of stuck. Because yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: People do not understand it. I mean, if you look at the polling, you ask them what, this, what, what proportion of the budget is spent on unemployment. And they come up with huge percentages, 20, 30%, where it's more like sort of five or six, even if you're counting very generously. And literally, JSA is about 1% of the budget. Jobs yeah. are about 1% of the budget. So people have, have a very distorted view of what is actually happening. And I think some of that's to do with, with the language. You know, I mean, we're talking about the welfare state here, but actually, nobody talks about the welfare state anymore. Hardly anybody talks about it. It doesn't enter the conversation. And we don't talk about social security anymore. We talk about welfare. And I think in you know in the, and in this sort of discourse, the meaning of the, the words has always been turned on its head. And that's I the mean conclusion. to be on welfare is to be on benefit street or part of the Great British handout, and it's kind of somewhere you don't want you don't really want to be. Yeah. Um. And and people do not understand that. Uh, I mean, clearly people on tax credits understand, but the wider public perception is that welfare is simply that given to the unemployed and also quite often the feckless
3: unemployed. And weirdly, the opposite is true of the NHS. So I perceive that there is a level of pride in the health service at pretty much every income level. Now, I mean, even with, as you describe it, sort of the slightly threadbare state the health service is in now after seven years of the Tories, there is still a consciousness that going to a, an NHS hospital is a good thing, even amongst the people who could probably afford to, you know, exit the system if they chose to. I mean, interestingly, some of our politicians, Angela Rayner and Jess Phillips notably, have chosen to talk about their experience claiming from the welfare state before they'd really paid in because of their situation having kids young or whatever that's relatively rare like there isn't many people i mean jk rowling would be the other one Mm -hmm. there aren't many people in the public consciousness that are putting their hands up and saying actually the welfare state got me out of a hole yeah you know i'm really glad and proud that it was there there's not that many people who do that it's key to them
1: going on to be successful which is what's yeah yeah, how they
4: both talked about it exactly the um well the nhs is is you know, it's kind of unique, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, it gets rated up there with the royal family, and yeah, yeah, you know, it's one of the great institutions. And you know, Nigel Lawson's great phrase: the closest the British people have to religion. Indeed, right, indeed,
3: but history. and that's because it rewrote our national story. I mean, in my view, that that what we were just talking about before is still true. That if people want a way of describing Britain, because that post-war moment of wanting to change everything. And the structure of society was so profound. Now it's still, I think, the best way people have to describe what it is they feel glad about being British about. Well, because we do things differently with healthcare. And it's a way of talking about who we are that isn't, you know, the royal family
2: yes. I and mean, ben bradshaw mentions Easy. this in his piece in the latest issue of progress as well that actually a recent polling shows that if there is one thing that could possibly make people change their minds about brexit it is effects on the national health service and that is more important to people than even the the national economy they just think that the health service is the the most important thing which i think is a kind of fascinating insight into um into that because you know, it really is yeah well because the, the the whole political idea is it's the economy stupid Whereas actually perhaps how well the NHS is doing is a little marker of not just how well the economy is doing but how well we are doing as a country in terms of looking after each other so it's not just about you know
3: so it seems to me that almost like that's because the health services is a service it's a person to person service whereas the thing that people feel less strongly about is the cash transfers
4: yeah and also i mean you know 1.4 million people work for the nhs so kind of everybody knows a nurse or a doctor or it's it's sort of plugged into society and and if they don't do that your relatives are using it or your friends are using it so it actually permeates society
3: whereas people aren't necessarily showing each other their pay slips and going look (laughs) if i didn't have these tax credits exactly
4: I mean, you mentioned
1: this kind of before but it was remarkable the way George Osborne, David Cameron said to people, under Labour, there's three million extra people on benefits. It's like, yes, they're your tax credits. And and some of the people in receipt of tax credits were voting against Labour because they put all these extra people on benefits. It was like, no, 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 we haven't tried to make work pay. No, as no. A no, no.
4: But this is not unique, profit. is it? I mean, a lot of the support for Trump. In the states, comes from people who say the government spends far too much on benefit, and loads of them are on various forms. Of and US he was pledging benefit. to increase them. Yeah, 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 that was one of the you things know, that was remarkable. You know. And when you get your tax so bill, this is not a purely British phenomenon. No, when you, and when you get your tax
2: bill on the back, there's the uh, little pie chart that divvies up what government spends all its money on and obviously welfare covers whatever it is you know
3: but my argument would be if you go yeah, to... that's because yeah. they call it welfare as well. yeah
4: yeah, whereas yeah. Whereas so, well, it's exactly. not it's, you know it's not welfare it is you know the biggest single bill is pension, pensions exactly yeah. Yeah. For which most people have contributed one way or another you know there's child benefit which again is a you know apart from the little bit at the top is normally tested universal benefit mm-hmm. if, if you label what is in fact what I would call social security, welfare, you distort the argument. Yeah, very true. So
1: in the addition that we did, uh, you obviously kicked us off uh, making many of the arguments you just made now, but we, are, we asked somebody to review each of the giants and how they were kind of doing now. So Karen Smythe, the Member of Parliament for Bristol South, she looked at health inequality and made the, thing, the point that you've just made, which is that we've moved from dealing with the very acute parts of people's health to now having long-term Issues that we deal with. Do you think that's the right kind of assessment?
4: Yes, no, I do. Yes. yes. Exactly. So it's not that we don't deal with the acute stuff, but we have the additional gains from longevity to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And they
3: are, they are gains. They and mean, why would we not yeah. be happy about yeah, yeah. people having a decent quality of life till they're, you know, about late 80s, early 90s? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an incredible success. Yeah. yeah.
1: And with some exceptions, the workplace is much safer. You're not becoming ill because of some of those and TB, et
4: cetera. That's why it takes so long to build crossrail. When you you look at the speed with which the the Victorians built railway lines, I mean, the miles faster than we do it now. It's just a lot of people got killed on the way.
3: Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
4: Yeah, exactly. The things we take for granted
1: these days. Kathleen Hennehan from the uh, Resolution Foundation, she had two interesting points saying when we got rid of the kind of basic ignorance there was a kind of basic standard of education that most people get but she highlighted in particular that Beveridge would be upset by uh, and ashamed i think she uses by the skilled inequality that we now experience where some people particularly some adults just feel very very low skilled and other people kind of run away with it do you think that yes yeah,
4: no i do well i think i think education is kind of a very mixed picture isn't it in that you know clearly people now but by and large, don't you seal till eighteen against fourteen. They get much better education. We have a huge university sector, which has been, you know, just despite the current rouse about it, has been hugely successful internationally. And we have permanently been crap at technical education. I mean, time right. after time after time, know, we yeah. come back to this, and it, it and we've never got anywhere near cracking it. You know, well, when you, you said- go back all the way back to Butler, though, we're going to be grammars, technical schools, and the secondary moderns, we'll leave the grammars, secondary, you know, technical schools never happened. Every time governments have tried to do something on technical education, it's never really been seen through. It's been, it's been one of our serious, you know, serious failures over 70 years.
3: And is that just the class system, basically? Is that just, is it basically there's a, something inherently know. snobby yeah. that we can't get rid of that somehow, you know, it's just not seen as quite as good?
4: Yes, I don't know. I mean, well, it's, I know, it's class system. I mean, It's clear we kind of failed and... I mean, not not all countries are good at this. Some are much better. Germany is clearly miles <laughs> better at it. France mm-hmm. is somewhat better at it, but not everywhere's good at it.
3: Even countries without the kind of British historic yeah,
4: exactly. associations with class have okay. struggle with it as well. But we struggle particularly with it. I think it's always there's never been any anything like parity of esteem. You mm-hmm. know, you know, if if you use the word engineer, right? If 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 you're French and you're an engineer, you are clearly a you know, a highly well qualified engineer. Here, we tend to think of people who operate lathes. If you say mm. I'm an engineer, you know, not people who design bridges or build them. Or you know, yeah. So, so, Count- so it's just a something we've never been able to deal with. Yeah.
1: Karen Buck seems the most depressed, I think, of all of the authors that we asked to write, basically saying that there was really big advances in housing that happened in that immediate post war period, but pretty much from seventy nine onwards it has been in total decline, an insufficient amount was done under the last labor government from her analysis, and that the private sector seems to be unabated in its kind of exploitation of people and she looks at her own casework and and sees it's pretty depressing. Yeah,
4: I'd be more optimistic than that without trying to say there aren't any problems. Um, and we're clearly much better... You know, we're better housed than we were in 79 and 80, if you take it as a whole. Uh, uh, not, I mean, not least because the last Labour government put a tonne of money into refurbishment in one form or another. So the stock quality of the stock got a lot better. You know, there has been the huge rise in private rented sector, and that's just been a very mixed blessing in the sense that, you know, some of buy-to-let helped with the refurbishment of private sector stock. On the upside, on the downside, there are exploitative landlords, there seem to be more of them, and the stock's going down, and it's clear we haven't built enough houses for a very, very long time. So it's quite a mixed picture. But I wouldn't argue that the position is worse than in 79. That's probably fair.
1: Uh, Luciana looks at food banks as the kind of modern soup kitchen, and they seem to be a permanent fixture now.
4: Yeah. Do you think it should be our
1: aspiration for them to disappear? Absolutely. As a kind of... I
4: sort of thought that's one of the more shocking things that's happened over the last decade. You know, the idea, I mean, if you, you say, what would Beveridge be shocked at? Well, I mean, food banks, <laughs> you know, his job was to get rid of soup kitchens. <laughs> you know, and now we've got food banks and and it's quite clear we've got them partly because, despite what we were talking about earlier of using benefits to subsidise low-paid work, too many people on low-paid works, even with tax credits, are, are struggling to manage. Yeah. And then finally, Pat McFadden looks at the issue of idleness and says we need a kind of
1: Marshall Plan for the working classes and tried to give that kind of second tier of cities a kind of economic purpose. And I know, Alison, you've done lots of stuff on this. Uh, that seems to me one where we could really build a strong agenda for the Labour Party going forward.
3: Yeah, I, I think that economic purpose, whilst Connor, as he said earlier, it can be harder to pin down what's lacking there. I mean, so Beveridge was an expert in unemployment. I mean, he basically invented the labour exchange. So he'd identified that one of the things that stopped people working was a lack of information about work was available. We had these incredibly undignified means by which people would come about work, you know, with the kind of call on and all of that. And he'd been part of that 1930s pre-war change in the way that we handled mass unemployment. And so in some sense, I, I don't know, Nick would know better than me, but maybe he would look at our, our situation now and think, well, actually, job centres done right, I would argue that the Tories don't, but done right, job centres are pretty dignified places these days. And we don't have... Mass unemployment in the way that the kind of recessions that we've had recently would have caused. However, that said, we have places that don't feel like they're moving forward economically. And that creates a sort of micro depression. So even when the country is growing, even when GDP, you know, at a macro level is growing. You could argue that there's some towns that have been in recession, sort of almost permanently for some time. Now, to me, that is that is a very different problem from the one that Beveridge was this addressing, is addressing. Because it's not because they're unemployed; it's, the we... it's
1: broadly because they're underemployed in that exactly. sense, isn't it? They've they've gone from working in steelworks to working in Tesco's, and there's not there's a problem about working in Tesco's, but it just it doesn't have the same returns on your labour. It doesn't have the same prospects. It doesn't have the same skills associated with it. It's and and exactly, nothing seems exactly. to come in place the, that the still works.
3: And the, exactly, and the, the very problem with deindustrialisation is that it's geographically located in a particular place. Yeah. So yeah and that was that was
4: a big beverage concern. His giant squalor he wants, he wanted to attack is you know normally taken to mean housing, and it did include housing, but actually what he was a lot of what he was referring to was was what you might call industrial planning. He was. You know the dead towns of Jarrow. You know the great sooty pig. In um, I have to read this out. You know, but but there were he he was worried about towns that had been hit so hard in the thirties. So when he talked about squalor, he was talking about industrial poverty, and it's clear that you know. Geographically, we have a very unbalanced economy and have had for a very long time now.
3: When we talk about that kind of, sorry, to bring us back full circle to the moment in the post-war years where there's, you know, as, as has been mentioned, you know, Churchill clearly wanted a vision of a new country. The Labour Party was able to trump him at the ballot box and had this massive vision. New towns and the creation of great places to live was a part of that and the point of those new towns was, was that they were designed with the work that people would do in mind so people moving out from squalor in in cities whether it was you know east end of London or you know ex uh, mining areas and moving into these kind of like new built towns was that they would have both somewhere good to live and a job to do and that they would be able to have a decent quality of family life.
2: Now we don't have very long left, but I would just like to bring up something that we've kind of alluded at a couple of times here, and that's the idea of missing giants from Beveridge's report. So essentially problems that perhaps Beveridge missed in the 1940s or simply didn't exist then, that now are quite pressing problems for our society. We, we covered one with Matt Dykes wrote an essay for the December issue on this. Matt Dykes from the TUC on essentially neglect, the idea that social care and childcare are two important things that need solving now, and I just wanted to ask you: like, was the reason that they didn't appear in the initial
4: report just because it wasn't as big a problem then? Mm. Well, it, that's certainly true in the case of social care, in that life expectancy was so much shorter that you know, it wasn't there weren't any problems with people living on old age in poverty, but it was a much smaller problem. And, you know, we've referred to this already, but, you know, if if, if someone, uh, elderly person with multiple conditions, their social care is probably as important to their quality of life as their health care, and that's a problem that it didn't not I mean, it wasn't non-existent, but it wasn't a major concern. And you have to remember, when Beveridge was writing his report, the main, the main concern was that the population was declining rather than growing and ageing. So you can understand why he didn't address that. Childcare is completely different. Again, of his time, feminists, not just feminists, will criticise the Beveridge report for what it did for women. In the sense, it actually did a fair bit for them, but it assumed that most married women wouldn't work after the war. I mean, despite the fact that women were... Flying completely unarmed Spitfires for delivery to the airfields of Kent, sort of yeah. past the yeah, yeah. sort of them in manufacturing and armaments and what have you. But the assumption was that women would, married women would not work and therefore they got a low level of benefit. And, you know, as we know, the role of women in society happily has been transformed since then. But with that comes the problem of childcare. So again, he got it. You could argue he got it wrong. I would argue he was of his time and mm-hmm. couldn't quite foresee or misforesee what was going to happen.
3: I think that for me, that's that's ab- absolutely right. Beverage. On the whole, I think, in terms of the fundamental principle that you should be able to smooth your income, you know, between periods of, of low income and when you're earning more, I think he got that fundamentally spot on. And it's still the best idea, probably, that anyone in our country's ever had on the state. The thing that he missed was women. Probably he was of his time. But, and the idea, if he'd written a report that said maybe women might want to work... And we need to think about that, too. People, you know, it wouldn't have got very far in those days, let's be honest. But
1: But there was an assumption that care was going to be done for free, wasn't it, by the women in society? That was essentially a a given of its time. And I think it is one that obviously hasn't aged very well and is a thing that we've still got to kind of conquer. I mean,
4: if if, if we had the... You forget how slowly some of this changed. I mean, it it was the early 1960s before every professional and employer stopped insisting a woman who got married gave up a job. Yeah. That was the early sixties before all of that went, you know so it's
3: we're still at the beginning of this conversation i mean you know we're still it it's i don't think it's i don't think it's agreed that care shouldn't be done for free i mean, I think there is a general assumption that women probably do want to do a lot of caring, and I don't think that's really something that's Properly questioned even now.
1: I think that's true. I think this is the thing that we can and must overcome. I mean, if Britain had the women's participation in the labour market that a contract like Denmark had, it'd be 4.5 billion a year to the Treasury. That would more than pay for a decent childcare system to make and enable that to happen. And of course, many of the social care costs that Matt Dykes in his piece and others rightly identify that we need for the system and what as somebody who wrote the editorial on on neglect being that missing thing i was really pleased to see rachel's work on the jo rachel reeve sorry on the joe cox loneliness commission came out and talked about a very similar thing of loneliness being a giant that was missed and that we've got to really think about that kind of wraparound care for people in the community and that some people get almost lost to their friends and neighbors at that time and that that can really build in depression, illness, and some of the other giants that Beveridge did identify.
4: Yeah, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's one of those areas that that cuts between rights and responsibilities, family responsibilities versus state's responsibility. There probably isn't a common cross-party answer to that. So if something is to be done about it, there's going to have to be some sort of a compromise that neither side will find perfect. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going
2: to have to leave it there. We've run out of time. But Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. My today. pleasure.
3: So every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which gets answered on Friday's
2: review show. And it's the last one of the year this year. I don't know. Oh, no. I, I know. We, we've got a few more episodes to come over the Christmas period, but this is the last political pub quiz we'll be doing. And I'm sad to admit that I shamelessly stole this off uh, Twitter user, Mr. David don't, Whitley.
3: Don't you steal them all off Twitter, basically? Uh,
2: fundamentally, yeah. Right. But he, he asked over the weekend, which is the only US state to be partly on the same latitude As Poland. Now, I know that that sounds like it might be quite easy. Get a globe. As well as having nothing to do with politics. So here's a clue that I think will make people think again. The state voted Clinton in
4: 2016.
3: Oh. So send your answers to at Pope on Twitter or email the office at office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a progress mug when the answer is announced on Friday morning. And if that doesn't say Christmas
2: what and <laughs> um, we need to wrap up now but we've been delighted to have Nicholas Timmins joining us today if you are worrying about suffering from progressive Britain withdrawal over Christmas and New Year don't worry there is no reason to overindulge in Christmas sherry and sob into your smoked salmon blinis we will be back on Friday on Boxing Day December 29th the
3: day before my birthday
2: the day before Alison McGovern's birthday if anyone wants to send in birthday wishes ahead of that and we'll also be here on January 2nd before res- resuming As normal in the new year. Friday's show will be responding to your comments and dishing out prizes, so do get in touch and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.
3: You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with me, Alison McGovern. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen